Just want to introduce our lunch speaker, Congressman Patrick McHenry, who is in his fifth term of the United States Congress, uh, representing the 10th District of North Carolina, which is uh, always special to my heart since all of my mother's family are from Western North Carolina. Good people there, I can vouch for that. Uh, he has had a, uh, in a short amount of time in Congress, done, a done an impressive uh, resume building and impressive number of activities, uh, including in the 113th having served as the Deputy Republican Whip. Uh, he's a member of the House Financial Services Committee where he s serves as the Chairman of the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations, which to me he's been very aggressive in, in holding this administration account for a number of things. Uh, he has also served on the House Committee uh, on Oversight and Reform, so he's certainly got the oversight thing uh, worked down. Uh, he's also, I think, still one of the youngest members of Congress, having been elected at the age of 29 in 2004. Uh, so I guess uh, hopefully he's learned his way around uh, up there, but uh, we're very delighted to have uh, Congressman McHenry here. He's gonna talk to you a little bit uh, today about uh, the oversight agenda there on Financial Services Committee. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Uh, thank you, Mark. And uh, I thank uh, Cato and Mercatus for having me here today. And I thank Jeff for more water on this hot, hot day. Um, I also uh, want to thank uh, Cato for such a large um, podium. Um, common problem with my enormous height um, is that those in the front of the room only see podium. Um, so, uh, but thanks so much, and uh, and Mark, I, I I have a new position as well, and you mentioned this in terms of whipping votes. Uh, I'm now the number four in House Republican leadership as Chief Deputy Whip, um, and so I have a uh, newly elected, uh, newly appointed to this position uh, three weeks ago. So I'm learning a lot in this new role. Uh, for, so for those of you who are not familiar with the process on in the House of Representatives, um, have you seen uh, House of Cards? Have you seen? Yes. Um, it's a whole lot easier to count uh, to a majority in the House of Representatives when you can kill people. So um, the Washington Post will certainly report that, I'm sure. So, uh, but uh, thanks so much, and uh, I'm happy to be here with a, a great North Carolinian uh, who I have enormous regard to when it comes to financial service policy. I find it very unique, uh, Mr. Allison, that it, in this setting as a, as a policymaker on Capitol Hill, I'm invited to go speak to a group of experts about their expertise, um, which is a, quite a daunting task. And when you look uh, to what uh, Mr. Allison and Mr. Calabria have done uh, in, in the work on financial services, as well as with Mercatus, um, Cato and Mercatus have been strong give us a strong uh, intellectual foundation for what financial reforms should look like, what our, what our market structure should be, what our government policies should be. And without that intellectual framework, without that intellectual underpinning, uh, what we do on Capitol Hill is but flying in the wind. Um, it is just fluttering about without, without a rudder and without power. Um, and our power is derived from better ideas and better policy and a stronger intellectual framework to work within. And that is the power that, that I think we need to harness and the opportunity we need to harness. The question today is, is, is certainly about what happened, uh, what, well, the, the fourth anniversary of Dodd-Frank, which is next week, and a look back on what happened six years ago with the great 
the beginning of the Great Recession and the financial crisis, the greatest financial crisis we've seen uh, since the Great Depression. Um, it pointed out to a number of regulatory failures, not failure of, uh, to regulate, but failure of regulation, an enormous distinction and a very important distinction for us to point out. Uh, what, what we saw out of the financial crisis was, was the government uh, writing checks, pledging, or demanding firms take um, uh, underwriting from government to the tune of over $12 trillion. Uh, this was uh, an opportunity uh, for liberals to seize on a crisis to put in place their hopes and dreams on the financial system as well as American public policy. They did not let a good crisis go to waste, in the words of Rahm Emanuel, uh, about healthcare, but also in regard to Dodd-Frank. Well, two years later, after Dodd-Frank's implementation, uh, two years after the financial crisis, and, and uh, uh, we, we had Dodd-Frank, which was 849 pages, as everyone well knows, that begat numerous government regulations. And so I wanna just go through uh, a few of the chief problems with Dodd-Frank and uh, for the creation of Dodd-Frank, the CFPB, or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, what we see as a result of Dodd-Frank is that credit is more expensive and less available. What we see as a direct result of the CFPB is the implementing of that very policy to limit financial products to the average consumer in America. Now, Dodd-Frank simply does not work. Dodd-Frank does not work. It costs $30 billion annually in new regulatory costs, and it costs uh, it cost it to the economy 54 million uh, man or woman hours of work in these agencies. It has given rise to one of the biggest growth areas in the financial services regime, which is of, of uh, bank examiner. If you look at the statistics for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they'll point out that that is the best avenue of growth for a young person to get into, is a bank examination process. Uh, that is a cost on the financial market and a cost to the American people that they don't directly see. But we do see, as a result of Dodd-Frank, a few things have happened. Uh, in 2009, there were 76% of banks offered free checking. Today, it's 39%. That has a chilling effect on my constituents in Western North Carolina, and the average American who's trying to meet uh, and make it to the next paycheck. Um, that is a costly burden, and that's as a direct result of Dodd-Frank. But we, we also see this other piece, which is a number of financial products simply not being offered anymore because of the new cost structures put on, especially small firms. Um, and as a result of Dodd-Frank, the idea was to have a regulatory super council, the Financial Stability Oversight Council. This was, for those that know cartoons, this was to be the Justice League. Think about it. Superman's there, uh, an academic with high cheekbones, Right? Okay, at least thank you. I appreciate the kindness. So, right? 
And what the Justice League has actually turned into is to the Legion of Doom, right? Um, and, and as a result of this, it's not a regulatory super council. It's just more incompetence, uh, but a new venue to expose their incompetence. Um, and we have bad policy as a result of it. So in that term, you have both the FSOC and the Office of Financial Research, which, which is supposed to be the central collection point for financial data. Their first report has been widely panned from everyone from uh, Cato to the far left. Uh, for every thinker in the financial services realm, uh, they've panned their academic uh, report and lack of rigor. But we also have the cost of regulation. The cost of regulation with those direct compliance costs and the man hours uh, of paperwork. We also have enormous numbers of rules that uh, are, gonna, are gonna affect small businesses and large businesses alike. We have less consumer choice. And for, for you know, a, a party that espouses greater choice and greater opportunities for all, when you limit products and limit opportunities, it does not help the economy, and as a result, we still have tepid growth. And it also helps, hurts the very people it was intended to help. So when you have bad policy and dangerous initiatives that come out of Dodd-Frank and the CFPB, um, we, we see the cost, and the cost is access to credit for those that are on the margins. I want to give you an example because, and, and really talk now about the CFPB. The CFPB is uh, a, a great cost burden on average firms and also a great cost burden um, on those that seek to access something as simple as a mortgage. So the CFPB uh, is, um, has the QM rule, the qualified mortgage rule. The QM rule is supposed to be qualified mortgages, but in the industry, it's known as quitting mortgages. The American banker outlined this problem. As a result of the QM rule that the, the CFPB has proposed, one-third of African-Americans and Hispanic borrowers would not meet the requirements of the QM uh, loan demands. Uh, the only way that's happening today is it, you're giving ex an exemption to the largest market players that are government stewards. Uh, in Fannie and Freddie, and that is problematic. You also can look at concrete statistics from Humda data as well to see the practical impact it is having on these consumers. And once QM is fully in, in, uh, enacted, you're gonna find it, it much harder for average Americans to qualify for mortgages. Uh, that is neither Richard Cordray's stated intent nor uh, what Dodd-Frank states, but in terms of policy and the impact it's gonna have, it's real, it's very real. So we've got, uh, we're on the side of angels when it comes to the qualified mortgage. And what I mean by that is the fact is that you simply can't have a one-size-fits-all approach to uh, giving, uh, loaning money or uh, uh, handing out mortgages. When you have a one-size-fits-all approach, you actually uh, get bad policy uh, and more, a, a more dangerous uh, marketplace as well uh, with, with firms that um, <clears throat> rather than using some other qualification such as a history of repayment rather than simply uh, your income stream, the question of your income stream, uh, it, which would balance things out. But the meat of what I want to say to you before, um, before we open it up for your questions 
is about the management failures within the CFPB. The CFPB was intended to police the industry, to tell the industry to not discriminate against the people they serve. That is a noble pursuit. What has happened with this bureau with over 1,100 people and a half a billion dollars that flows from the Federal Reserve's profits, what has happened to those 1,100 people is a horrific thing. What we have is a, a rampant set of uh, uh, managers, I'm sorry, a, a large group of managers that have a lack of management expertise or history. They have no experience when it comes to financial, largely no experience when it comes to financial accounting, uh, bank examination, or even uh, the rigors of the private sector that would say that when you hire people, you have to go through a reasonable process to seek out best candidates rather than hire people that only have one qualification, that they previously worked on a presidential campaign that won the White House. When you put a set of people in, in charge of a new bureau, you end up having significant problems. Richard Cordray is having a set of very serious problems. His problem is that he will not hold people accountable and fire bad actors. If this were the private sector, you would have very expensive class action lawsuits against any entity that discriminated against its employees as the CFPB currently is. We've heard testimony from enormous numbers of whistleblowers. Chairman Henserling last year set forward uh, that we would hear from whistleblowers uh, from the CFPB who wish to come forward and tell their stories. Tell their stories about uh, bureau incompetence um, or management challenges, so on and so forth. I had deep concerns, when I, and I shared this with Jeb, that we would have just disgruntled people come forward, people that um, maybe didn't like the desk that they were sitting at. Maybe, uh, maybe they were union activists because the CFPB is now unionized, if that tells you uh, the, the, the challenges um, uh, that they have, that the average employee decided to join a union uh, in order to find protection from their managers. Um, such good-hearted, reasonable managers. Um, and I'll tell you one a few stories of that. But I was concerned that we're going to have a, a number of people just come forward to complain. We didn't. We had highly credible individuals that thoroughly believed in the mission of the Bureau and went there because they have a, 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 a record uh, of activism in the left, on the left consumer advocates, folks who'd spent their careers um, that wanted to be a part of the mission of the CFPB. I'll tell you one story of a woman named Angela Martin. Angela Martin uh, spent, uh, retired from the military, um, was a, a JAG officer in the military, and at the end was helping as a JAG officer uh, deal with uh, some young recruits who'd who'd gotten into debt and trying to resolve their, their issues. She's a true believer, a true believer. Um, if she lived in my district, uh, I think it's pretty clear she would never vote for me. However, right? um, however, uh, she was sincere. 
and hardworking. The amount of, um, well, as a result of, of her complaint of, of retaliation and discrimination, um, her uh, direct uh, supervisor removed her from any casework. So she's a very high paid government employee with no work. Uh, she filed a claim of discrimination and her supervisor immediately took away all of her direct reports, immediately took away all casework, and immediately left her in an office with nothing to do. Uh, she then filed a claim of retaliation for having uh, filed a secret claim of discrimination. Um, the person, the two people that she's alleging discriminated against, now that she's had a settlement, have seen no demotion and in fact have gotten large bonuses. Some of the larger bonuses on a percentage basis that the Bureau gives out. Um, so, and, and, and by the way, this Angela Martin is not some low-level employee. She was directly hired by Elizabeth Warren and Richard Cordray. Uh, we do also have the emails and text messages between Richard Cordray and Angela Martin. They know each other well. This is one example of what the Bureau is doing. We've heard as well from a number of other whistleblowers and will continue on this path. So not only is there a, a cost to the taxpayer for the CFPB, not only a cost to the industry, not only the cost to the average American who seeks financial products, but there's a human toll levied on people of goodwill here in Washington. If this were another bureau or department in government, uh, you would see a number of people being fired. You would see uh, outrage among the left about this. And since it is the CFPB, and since there is a certain senator from Massachusetts that uh, was apparently the brainchild of this, this masterpiece, um, they have said nothing. They've said nary a word about uh, individuals being discriminated against and retaliated against in this bureau. The final thing I'd like to mention is that um, when you drive by the old executive office building on 17th Street, on your right is the beautiful old Eisenhower executive office building. On your left is this uh, style of architecture that was very popular in the 1960s called brutalism. Raw concrete. Um, it is perhaps, uh, it was the old OCC office. It was built in the late 60s. Uh, the tax value in the District of Columbia is right at $100 million on that building. It's a fantastic piece of real estate you can almost see the White House from the windows. It is an ugly building, indeed, but I work on Capitol Hill. We specialize in Washington on some monstrosities. That building that the CFPB is now housed in was built, uh, it's actually a newer building than my office in Rayburn, uh, Rayburn House office building. I said the tax value is $100 million, but the good news is the CFPB, with the largesse that we grant them, is going to undertake over a $200 million uh, renovation. They, they want to treat their employees very well, even if they discriminate against them. So there'll be a serenity garden. There'll be a garden for us to just meditate, perhaps. There'll be wonderful waterfalls to calm those people that have maybe have their nerves frazzled. And we're going to be paying for that. This originally was a $55 million uh, renovation. 
because uh, I think Richard Cordray's quote, I want to get this right, is that, um, oh goodness, well, it was a dump, I think he described it as. So this plan, this discrimination for this bureau goes back to a management failure. And when you have one person in charge that is given a, an appointment, uh, well, no matter how he got the appointment, and a fixed term of office with a very little ability to remove that person, an unlimited budget without any checks or balances on where that money comes from. There is a one-page letter that they send over quarterly from the, to the Federal Reserve, very conveniently, their bank, that draws down money. The Fed cannot say no, they can't question, and there's no check on that money. So they simply draw down what they wish. If that money was not drawn down by the CFPB, it would be returned to the taxpayer. As a result of this management structure, this flow of money that is unchecked and unfettered, you have these failures. As a result of Dodd-Frank's uh, malfeasance, uh, and the malfeasance of this management they've put in place to implement Dodd-Frank, we have bad policy. The cost is borne by the taxpayer. What we have to do in terms of the policy area, as a result of these things, we have the framework for their failure. What we have to have is the framework for what a successful financial market looks like. That's why the work of Mercatus, that's why the work of Cato is so very important that we can articulate our policies, our, our ideas, if you will, for what ideal financial markets would look like and how they would function. That is the work that we have to collaborate on. We have some answers when it comes to response to the CFPB and some answers on our response to Dodd-Frank, but we have a lot more work to do. So with that, I would love to take your questions. Congressman, thanks for your uh, dogged efforts on these things uh, with respect to CFPB. I know one other thing you guys have been working on very intently is uh, Operation Choke Point, uh, your committee. I was just wondering if you could give, give us a, a sense of what you guys have found out and what, what else is going on with that whole issue. Well, um, strangely enough, no one has great answers. Um, just this week we had uh, the FDIC, the OCC, the Federal Reserve, and uh, the Department of Justice. We had uh, the legal, legal counsels from the um, prudential regulators, and then we also had the lead lawyer at the Department of Justice overseeing Operation Choke Point. Um, the, uh, as you can imagine, uh, the Department of Justice says that there are no issues here. They're not trying to choke off a whole set of industries from accessing the financial marketplace. Now, of course, the documents we received have stated that they're doing just that, uh, whether it's uh, uh, firearms or fireworks sales. Uh, they are intent on, on choking off a whole set of industry folks. This is what, what became clear as a result of this hearing is that it's the FDIC that is driving forward with this. 
The OCC wants nothing to do with this. They'd like to police uh, uh, bad actors on a case-by-case basis at the OCC. They made that very clear. They also made it very clear that, uh, as well as the Federal Reserve, made it very clear that they don't think this is the right approach. Uh, There was a lot of tension on that panel, and I was happy to see that tension, and hopefully the Department of Justice will respond, and if they don't respond, We'll have we'll 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 bring them up, and it will be even a tougher hearing. Yes. Well, thanks for con- uh, coming, Congressman. Uh, so I've been following pretty closely the in the last few months, the Financial Services Committee has held markups on so-called Jobs Act 2.0 legislation. Yeah. And I've been following pretty closely your bill that you introduced about a few weeks ago, a month or two ago, that would reform some of the crowdfunding provisions of the JOBS Act. But I noticed that it was pulled from one or two markups in the last few months. And I was sort of wondering why that was. Are you changing certain parts of the bill? And will that bill uh, be worked on uh, this year? Um, I'm still working. Well, uh, to that point, uh, as a part of the JOBS Act, the president signed... uh, uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago now, um, there are a number of provisions that are that are in a very beneficial that are uh, liberalizing the the securities marketplace. Uh, the one part of the bill that I care most about, uh, I helped write, which was the crowdfunding provision, allowing uh, small companies and um, uh, to raise small amounts of money uh, on the internet. Uh, so we have gift-based crowdfunding now. What this would do is enable uh, firms to sell equity online. Um, it's a libertarian zone on in securities laws. What I was trying to create. Uh, there was one amendment uh, that the Senate uh, proposed and passed on the Jobs Act uh, that, in my view, uh, made equity crowd uh, equity crowdfunding uh, nearly impossible. They added a number of uh, legal provisions. And uh, they made the law far too convoluted for a firm to have any safety in doing this in the long term. Uh, they eliminated the idea of even uh, portals where you'd raise your money online. Think of Kickstarter, Indiegogo, uh, those web portals. Think of that. It, it, the way they wrote the Senate bill, it would preclude those portals from taking down bad actors from raising money because that would, soli- that would mean that they're giving investment advice. Silly, absolutely silly. After talking to experts from the industry and working with the SEC, the SEC proposal they're putting forward is bad, but it's, it is necessarily bad because the law is bad when it comes to crowdfunding. So what I've been trying to do is work with the very same players that were supportive of crowdfunding and my original language in the House of Representatives that came out of the Financial Services Committee without a dissenting vote, that passed the House floor with uh, around 400 votes. Uh, That standalone piece of legislation, I went back to the people that supported it and said, let's go to that language. Surprisingly, they won't support the original language they voted for now. Um, And so that's what I was trying to work with, is get get, uh, my Democrat colleagues that helped me with the original crowdfunding bill to come back to the table and do it again. Uh, they're not willing to do that. Um, and I, there are a couple reasons for that, but I'll 
I'll hold back on expressing those. Any other questions, comments, concerns, ideas? Yes, ma'am. So one of the things that we were hearing yesterday is people were talking about revisiting regulations and looking at the costs ex post facto. One of the difficulties in the United States, in, you know, in comparison to maybe some other countries that are less democratic, is that once legislation has been passed and it's in you know, enacted, it's very difficult to get rid of it. Um, and so I just wondered if you had any thoughts on how you plan to go, or not, not you specifically, but how, um, you know, the House, House Republicans plan to go about um, addressing this issue of kind of once something's entrenched, it's entrenched, and, you know, that's the end of it. Well, uh, well a couple of things. We have an election around the corner. Right, and and as a result of that election, if the ch if the Senate changes, a number of things can change when it comes to Dodd Frank. Uh, we have a Senate Majority Leader right now who is intent on not changing a single letter in Dodd Frank until times change. And then what we saw the Senate do uh, just in the last couple of weeks was pass the first change that that uh, body has passed. Uh, to Dodd-Frank. The first change to Dodd-Frank, the body has passed. Um, and so uh, the so-called Collins Amendment, when it comes to uh, uh, capital standards for insurers versus uh, making uh, uh, not the one-size-fits-all approach to capital standards that is in Dodd-Frank, but giving the Federal Reserve the authority to customize capital standards for insurers and non-banks. Um, that passed by, with a wide margin. If that happens, it's an indication to me that there is, there is the will in the Senate to pass changes to Dodd-Frank, very significant changes. Uh, the challenge, uh, from my perspective, is getting those um, ideas scheduled, and, uh, scheduled for a vote on the Senate floor. If we get those things scheduled, we'll be able to pass a lot of changes to Dodd-Frank. Um, that, that will rebalance this. Maybe not a full rewrite, but will we'll help enough Americans in the short run uh, that, that, well, and as a result, the economy will, will have stronger growth, I think, if we do this. So if, if we have uh, a new Senate majority leader uh, who will schedule those votes, I think we can win on those things. Um, and the moment we get to a conference committee between the House and the Senate on Dodd-Frank provisions, then we can actually have uh, greater reforms as a result. So I'm hopeful. Yes, sir. What would be the possibility of a, uh, a full appeal of a law? Full repeal? Well, I'm for a full repeal of Dodd-Frank. I'm for that. What about possibility? Possibility? Anything's possible. <laughs> Hope springs eternal. The probability, right? The likelihood, the probability. The probability is very low. Um, you tell me what happens in this next uh, election, and I'll tell you what happens in terms of policy. You tell me what happens with the next presidential election, I'll tell you what happens is in, in terms of policy. Um, what is unknown is what happens with these very competitive Senate seats. Senate is really up for grabs. Um, the House of Representatives, the, the, the hope of, of my party in the House is that we grow the number of, uh, of conservatives in the House of Representatives. 
Um, in terms of the Senate, anything's, anything's possible. Um, the, the Senate majority for, for Republicans has been much like Charlie Brown and the football. Oh so close, but oh so far away. That's what happened in 2010 and 2012. So um, if, the, if the election results change, if you have a Republican majority in the Senate, um, let's say you have 52, 53 votes, I think you can have significant reforms to Dodd-Frank. Um, if, you, if you give me 60 uh, Republican votes in the Senate, I can see a repeal um, and an override of the president's veto and a solid replacement to Dodd-Frank of a region, re, reasonable regulatory regime. And I, Elizabeth Warren's head would explode as well. <laughs> and, and that sound that everyone would hear would be the flow of capital to small businesses. <laughs> Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell us something about this Rodney Marshall? Pardon me? Sorry. Gerald Chandler, could you tell us uh, about the variety of lobbying organizations working uh, to maintain Dodd-Frank or to repeal it? Are the teachers or the unions or the banks uh, very active in these areas? Well, we have uh, the unions and um, uh, have funded a, uh, an operation here in Washington that has a very reasonable sounding name in order to advocate for their position uh, of maintaining Dodd-Frank and a number of the provisions that, that benefit uh, really union and, and some pension holders. Um, th that's the most significant uh, lobbying effort. The Department of Treasury is the other, the Federal Reserve, um, what we know now of the Federal Reserve in the midst of the financial crisis, just looking at the, 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 the minutes of the meetings now, we know that they did not know any more that, than we did in the market. And in some instances, actually knew less. Um, now, in those minutes, uh, uh, Janet Yellen comes off fairly well, uh, but I wouldn't say the Federal Reserve comes off very well as a result of those, uh, if you just go through the, the uh, minutes, you can see. Um, yet as a result of Dodd-Frank, they have more power. And in fact, they have the new creation of FSOC that can give the Federal Reserve even more power. Um, and I, I've got deep concerns about that, not in terms of the independence of the, uh, of the bank and a, a, a independent uh, central bank uh, for our country that has the wise long view. I think there's some things we need to do there. We need to have the Taylor rule to make sure the monetary policy is connected to uh, uh, some sound metric of measurement. Um, uh, Steve Forbes has obviously advocated the gold standard. There, there are some strictures that we have to put on, on the making of money. But when it comes to the regulatory regime if the, at the Fed, um, they are the ones that are gobbling up the rest of the marketplace. Um, and they are so removed from checks and balances uh, that have tr traditionally been on our regulators um, that, that I think it, 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 it is going to, at the end of the day, make the central bank less independent and much more political with the powers that they're accumulating. Um, so I, you know, I think uh, what the Fed is doing what the CFPB is doing uh, runs so counter to historic norms in our United States 
Um, and we, we've got to check those things. Yes? You spoke about, uh, you know, the possibility of getting some changes to Dodd-Frank via a joint conference committee. But, I mean, I remember that the last major joint conference committee, it took the threat of the, gov the actual government shutdown to get Ryan and, and Murray to the table, and then it was a trillion-dollar omnibus spending bill. So what, what impetus do you think you would need to get a, a conference committee to come together to talk about Dodd-Frank, barring either, you know, a political change in, in the breakdown of the two houses or some major crisis which requires, you know, action immediately? New leadership. Look, the Senate is a dysfunctional body. I'm not the first member of the House of Representatives to say that, right? And over 200 years, there's, we have a great history of the Senate being semi-competent on a regular basis, right? And as a member of the House, I'm fond of saying and very familiar with saying that, um, you know, we have 435 members of the House and 100 members of the Senate. We both have some commonality, though. We have roughly 90 to 100 members in both chambers that are mostly worthless. <laughs> right? So, so, you know, the Senate doesn't act well. Uh, it, it, the Senate is a very difficult chamber to manage, even with strong leadership. And Harry Reid is anything but. What's that? Say that again. Uh, so strong leadership there can actually make the Senate function. And I believe that there's a lot of goodwill over there, um, or there is goodwill enough to do real legislating. They've just not been given the opportunity. And Harry Reid's more concerned about the politics rather than sound policy. Um, and so if you have a new Senate majority leader, you can then have votes, then you can th then have constructive policy making. Gotta have hope, otherwise why would I stick around in this process? It's, it's a pretty thankless process. Right. Any other questions, thoughts, ideas? Okay. Um, yes? Thank you. E Elaine Middleman, just to follow up on what you were saying, if there are people in the Senate that maybe zero to ten people that are competent or worthwhile or whatever, are those people frustrated and they will leave? Or, I mean, if this, if this simply isn't working, what, what would you, I mean, you're not in the Senate, but what is well, the hope for that? Well, there are, I think there are some senators, like you just said, that maybe do want to make a, you know, constructive. Yeah, I mean, Look, I, you know, I, I, I joke about that, and there's a natural tension between the, between the two chambers, obviously, right? Um, but I joke about that. There, there are some very uh, sharp individuals in the Senate I don't maybe fully agree with, uh, but they've not been given the opportunity to truly legislate. Uh, you look at Bob Corker in Tennessee as an example, okay? I like Bob a lot, I, and I don't agree with him on everything. Okay, I really, I, I, I've got some differences of, of perspective on a number of, of matters, but he is attempting to pull people together. What is the difference between Bob Corker and the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, Mr. Johnson? Well, it's that will to bring people together and work things out. The Senate is just designed to be a collaborative body that is very difficult to move anything forward. 
That is why the Founding Fathers put in place this, this strange system of checks and balances, not to make it easy uh, to pass legislation, but to make it very difficult to take away liberties. I respect that. In the House of Representatives, we are very much majoritarian. In the Senate, it's a much more collaborative process. But you have to have somebody driving that process. And the other person who's been missing in that driving of, of policy is the President of the United States. You have to set the agenda, you have to drive forward on policy, and you have to engage people. It is a tough process, even with strong leadership. Even with strong leadership. But our system and our checks and balances are designed to make that challenging so that the outcome is better. So the American people don't wholesale reject policies of its government and its representatives. What we've seen is a breakdown in that. And when you have a breakdown in that, the American people don't accept it. They don't accept policies that are jammed down their throats. And when you look at the bailouts, you look at Dodd-Frank, you look at the health care law, and you can even go back to a number of other things uh, over the last uh, decade. But the American people rebel. And so that discontent among my constituents and, and the American people is so related to the, and connected with uh, the dysfunction in our government. And so I'm trying to work through that, and we all have a responsibility to do that to bring people together. I think part of the reason why you're seeing greater turnover in the Senate with uh, some junior members not running again, not seeking re-election, is for lack of work product. Um, and so I, I think it is a, it's a real lesson to other senators to, to start getting it together. Talking a lot about the Senate, so anyway, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, uh, I am not, I'm not, yes sir. Um, look, I, I, yeah. Uh, the question of repealing the Seventeenth Amendment. I, I think the challenge here, when we're talking about amending the Constitution or proposing amendments to the Constitution, we have a very difficult time of getting a majority vote in the House of Representatives on anything, much less the much higher threshold to amend and change the Constitution. There have been a lot of, uh, lot of questions about gathering the states and a number of other initiatives. Uh, I, I, think we're, I, I think that's far beyond where the American people are right now. So, any other questions? All right, well, you all have been very kind and I certainly appreciate uh, your feedback and guidance and uh, I'm sorry you couldn't have a more entertaining or interesting lunch speaker, but uh, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you. God bless.